0: All right, well good morning everybody. You guys sound like a group of people ready for Christmas. Um, next Sunday, as you heard from the announcements, we're having normal church just 10:30 to 12. So we will be doing a Christmas message next week and then a brief uh, devotional at our candlelighting service at 6 p.m. But today, we're still talking about the Edomites. Can you guys handle that? The <laughs> Edomites, um, part of... Our verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Genesis, where God is raising up a very special nation with a very special land. The Edomites, the descendants of Esau, are not to be confused with Israel and the land of Israel. Genesis 36 is giving us that record. You say, well, why is the land of Israel and the Jewish people such a big deal? It's such a big deal because God has covenanted to bless the world through the Jewish nation. One of those blessings we will be celebrating uh, next week, the birth of Jesus. Jesus was born into the line of Israel. Jesus was not a Baptist. He was not a Methodist. He was not a Presbyterian. He wasn't even a member of a Bible church. He was Jewish to the core. And that was the design of God because God said, I'll bless the world through Israel. The first of those blessings is Jesus himself. And so that's how to look at some of these intricacies of the book of Genesis as God is raising up this nation He's putting the whole foundation in place because he wanted to bring to the world his Savior, which is not just for the Jewish people, it's for the whole world. And we're blessed today being the recipients of it. But sometimes being the recipients of it, we forget the structure that God built to bring it to us. And that's really what the book of Genesis is about. God chose some very special patriarchs to begin this special nation through. First, Abraham. You can see the Genesis divisions where we've studied these different patriarchs. Isaac. And the last uh, patriarch there is Jacob. You say, well, I thought Jacob had a brother named Esau. He did. Well, what became of his descendants? Genesis 36 talks about it. So I suppose if I have a plan, um, someone once said, if you want to make God laugh, show him your plans. Uh, but from a human perspective, I do have a plan to complete Genesis 36. Don't worry, not today. But there's one remaining Sunday in December before we hit the new year. I'm planning to finish Genesis 36 then, and Lord willing, we'll be starting the new year. Uh, on more familiar territory with the life of Joseph. So Genesis 36, we have Esau, Jacob's brother, and his sons born in Canaan. We saw that last week. We saw uh, Esau leave Canaan to go down south into a place called Edom. Edom there is towards the south of the Dead Sea. There's a mountain range there called Mount Seir. And that's where Esau's descendants that became the nation of Edom settled. And we saw a record of Esau being the progenitor of these various descendants in Canaan. Then he took them all and left. And now we have a record of his sons born in Seir itself. And we see that there in verses 9 through 14. Which, Lord willing, we're going to try to cover this paragraph today. And if time permits, maybe the paragraph after it, but I can't guarantee that. But notice, first of all, Esau's tablet. You see that there in verse 9. It says, these then are the records of the generations of Esau the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. Now by this time you probably learned that when it says these are the records of, that's a very significant statement in the book of Genesis. It's a translation of the Hebrew word Toledot, which simply means it's actually plural. It says these are the generations of. And what that <coughs> signifies is is the beginning of a new record. Because when Moses wrote the book of Genesis, it wasn't the kind of thing like John had on the island of Patmos when John wrote the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, where John was shown a vision and God told him to write down what he saw. That is not how the book of Genesis came into existence. It came into existence through various... Uh, records and every time you hit this word toledot in the book of genesis it's starting a new record so as these historical records were compiled they were passed down through the generations and there have been about 9 or 10 toledot references so far you have the introduction to the generations not entirely sure who wrote that maybe adam Then there are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And there are, in parenthesis on the right, the different sections of the book of Genesis that cover those areas. Then you have the generations of Adam. Adam most likely wrote that and passed it on. And then Noah's story happened. And you have the generations of Noah. Noah wrote down his story and added it to pre-existing records and passed it on down And so forth. And so we have studied the generations of Noah, the sons of Noah, the generations of Shem, the generations of Terah, that's Abraham's father, the generations of Ishmael, the generations of Isaac, and now this is where we are, the generations of Esau. What uh, became of Esau, what became of Esau's descendants. In fact, there's actually two references to a Toledot in this chapter. One is in verse 1, which is a reference to Esau's wives in the land of Canaan and sons born in the land of Canaan. And then beginning in verse 9, there is a second reference to a Toledot where it is a reference to Esau's sons born from his wives, now further south in Edom and Mount Seir. And essentially what happened (coughs) is (coughs) Jacob in Genesis 46, and we'll be covering... um, Genesis 46. At some point, hopefully before the rapture. But Jacob is going to take all of these records and he's going to bring them with him when he leaves the land of Canaan and sojourns in Egypt where the nation of Israel will spend 400 years. God at that point will have supernaturally worked through the life of Joseph Joseph will have been elevated by that time to second in command over Egypt. And so Jacob is now going to where Joseph is to find uh, grain in the midst of famine. And all of Israel, the people group Israel, leaves Canaan at that point. And this is where the book of Exodus will pick up. Providentially, God will be at this point at work through Moses. Moses, as we'll discover in the book of Exodus, is set adrift on the Nile. And through that series of events, he ends up being reared in the home of the Egyptian princess. And in that position, he was given one of the greatest educations a human being could be given at that point. Had Moses stayed a slave, a common slave in Egypt, he wouldn't have had the education that he received in Egypt. But this was all God's design because God had his hand on Moses and knew Moses was destined to accomplish great things. Not only would he be the lawgiver, not only would he be the ruler or the leader which would lead Israel out of Egyptian bondage, But he would also be given the awesome task of writing the book of Genesis. And that's why all of these records, we believe, are going to end up in Moses' library, so to speak. And he is going to take all of these records as the Holy Spirit is guiding him, and he's going to pen what we know as the book of Genesis. So Moses was very dependent on sources When he wrote the book of Genesis, not a big issue when you understand that God worked that way in the life of Dr. Luke. Who gave us the gospel of Luke. Luke was not an eyewitness to the things of Jesus Christ. He was not one of the original twelve. So how in the world did Luke get his material together to pen what we call the Gospel of Luke? Well, he was depending upon sources. He was depending upon other pre-written accounts of the life of Christ. Luke most likely interviewed a lot of different people. I would assume that he interviewed Mary, Jesus' own mother, And through these various sources, Luke, and we believe this is where the Holy Spirit, moved in and guided Dr. Luke to record the Gospel of Luke. In fact, the whole Christmas story that many families and churches are going to be focused on in the coming week comes from Luke's Gospel. And yet Luke himself was not one of the original 12. He put all of that together through sources. And if Luke can do it through sources, why can't Moses do it through sources? And the sources are given with this reference to these are the generations of. That's simply a citation of another source that Moses is drawing from. Luke uh, writes in Luke chapter one verses one through four. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, Luke says, "I'm not the first gospel writer. There are other what we call gospellets floating around. They were not inspired by God, but they were written accounts of the life of Christ. And Luke brings it all together." as the holy spirit uses luke to record the gospel of luke he says this is they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word luke says i wasn't an eyewitness but i talked to eyewitnesses it seemed fitting for me as well as having investigated everything carefully from the beginning what is he talking about this interviewing process that he did To write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. That's the recipient of Luke's gospel, a man named Theophilus. Theophilus, by the way, means lover of God. It's a combination of the word theos, God, phileo, as in brotherly love. This was a God seeker. This is someone that wanted to understand the things of Jesus Christ. Luke says, I'm going to write it out for you since you're a God seeker. And I'm going to depend upon sources that I've interviewed to put this material together so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. This is how the gospel of Luke came into existence through sources. It's just this time around the Holy Spirit came upon Luke and guided him in a very special way, in a way that he had been guided that he had guided no other writer prior to this with these other accounts that Luke is referencing. And this is how the gospel of Luke came into existence. The book of Genesis comes into existence the exact same way. Through records that Moses, given the right education at the right time, could compile into what we call the book of Genesis, a book that is absolutely foundational to the rest of our belief system. Psalm 11 verse 3 says, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? You take away the book of Genesis and the Bible collapses like a house of cards, including why and how the Savior would ultimately come into the world. But God, through the centuries, took great pains to preserve these records, to give us a clear account of the foundation of Jesus, which is the nation of Israel. Without Israel and without this foundation, you have no Jesus. It's kind of interesting to me how people will treat the book of Genesis. Oh, Genesis chapter 1, who, who in the world could take that literally? I mean, you don't really believe that God created the world in six days, do you? Oh, the generations of the heavens and the earth, the Garden of Eden, the Cain and Abel story. I mean, only a fool would take that at face value. But it's kind of interesting as you move through the book of Genesis, we have the generations of Adam, the generations of Noah, the generations of of Shem. The generations of Terah, now by the time you get to Terah, we're dealing with the story of Abraham, and everybody takes that literally. The generations of Ishmael, everyone takes that literally. Generations of Isaac, that's literal. Generations of Esau, that's literal. Generations of Jacob, that's literal. So what people do is they play this little game with the book of Genesis that the early parts are not literal, but the rest of it is. I can't tell you how many churches I know that will start a series on the book of Genesis and they'll start it in chapter 12. Why would they start in chapter 12 when Genesis starts in chapter 1? Well, because in the minds of the minister or in the minds of the leadership, nobody in their right mind would take chapters 1 through 11 literally. It doesn't get literal until the story of Abraham. Many, many theologians that I know of, Bible professors, so-called Bible scholars think this way. And yet the Toledot repetition will not allow that mindset. Because it's the exact same Hebrew word all the way through. Toledot, 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 Toledot. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. These are the generations of Noah. That same Hebrew word is also used of all of the other references to toledot. So if you believe that the Joseph story is literal and it's built around this toledot, you can't just willy-nilly switch horses in midstream and say, well, you know, the stuff about Adam and Eve couldn't have happened. I'm here to tell you folks at Sugarland Bible Church, we we take the whole Bible at face value. The Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. Can I get an amen on that? We are not here to approach the Bible in this kind of piecemeal way. Oh, this part over here is literal, but not the Garden of Eden stuff. The, The very structure of the book of Genesis with the repetition of the Toledot will not Allow that to happen. And if consistency means anything, it means you can't treat one area of the book of Genesis with one method of interpretation and then switch horses in midstream and just sort of throw out or kiss off the early chapters of the book of Genesis. God means what he says and says what he means. All of these attacks that we have seen against the book of Genesis over the last, oh, I don't know, 100, 200 or more years comes right out of the pit of hell because Satan himself understands that if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You have no Christianity, you have no Jesus, you have no last Adam if you didn't have a First Adam. And so that's why with some of these things, I bring them to to your attention. You move now from Esau's tablet down into verse 10, and now we learn of Esau's sons, now from Canaanite wives, born in the Mount uh, Seir area. If you look at verse ten, you have the sons that come through Ada, one of them is named Eliphaz. The sons that come through Basemoth, one of them is Ruel. Look if you will at verse ten. It says, These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife Adda. Ruel, the son of Esau's wife, um Basmoth, I think is how you as how you pronounce that. And as you continue on, now we have the sons that come from Eliphaz. So these would be essentially Esau's grandchildren. And notice, if you will, verse 11, it says the sons of Eliphaz were Timon, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. And here come these sons born from Eliphaz. You say, those names are really weird. I I can't pronounce those names. Well, that's why I put them on the screen for you, uh, for your enjoyment. Now, notice this here. This, I think, is very interesting. You have verse 11, Eliphaz, who begat Timon. It's interesting that when you get into the book of Job, Job has three counselors, uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And if you want an example of how not to counsel somebody when they're having problems, take a note from those three guys. Because at one point in the book of Job, Job says, you know, you all are just like miserable counselors, because they, they thought they knew everything about why Job was suffering. And yet the truth of the matter is they knew nothing. Because they were not privy to the angelic conversation between God and Satan concerning Job. That Job knew nothing about and Job's counselors knew nothing about it. And yet they all assume that, Job, you're obviously having the problems that you're having because there's sin in your life. If you just get rid of the sin, these problems would stop. It sort of reminds me in John 9 about the man born blind. Do you remember that story? I think it's in John 9, around verse 3, the disciples were coming and they, they saw this man born blind. And, and they said to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he'd be born blind? So obviously the man is blind because there's some kind of sin in his life or some sort of sin in the parents' lives. And Jesus said something very interesting. He said, neither. He said, this man was born blind so that the glory of God might be manifested in him. I don't know how you interpret it. I'll give you my interpretation for what it's worth. God allowed that man to be born blind because God knew in John 9 that Jesus would come and restore that man's sight. And the Lord God would get the glory. So jumping to this conclusion that there's sin in his life or there's sin in his parents' life produced that is the same mindset of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. In fact, if Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar weren't bad enough, then a fourth guy shows up later on in the book of Job named Elihu and he, he, he starts saying the same kinds of things. And it's not until God talks finally at the end of the book of Job that you finally start to figure out what's going on and what God does to Job who's trying to protest his innocence before God. Why have you allowed this to happen to me? I haven't sinned when the issue is not sin at all. The conversation is the issue. That all of these human counselors knew nothing about. Job 1 and 2 is the issue. And so they're all sharing, we might put it this way, out of the abundance of one another's ignorance. Assuming a bunch of things that were not true. And the point of the book of Job is you don't know anything. How did God prove his point? He gave Job a quiz. Did you ever take a pop quiz in school? I mean, a pop quiz was sort of a frightening thing because if you're given a sudden quiz and you're asked questions about something, it typically shows how little you know. I mean, nothing humbles us more than not knowing the answer to something. And finally, God talks in Job chapter 38, and he asks Job a series of questions, which he can't answer. And he says things like this. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know. Where were you when the earth, heavens and earth came into into existence and the sons of God and the angels were shouting with joy? Where were you? And it just reads like that as you're moving through Job 38, Job 39, Job 40. To some extent, Job 41, where finally Job repents in sackcloth and ashes, he finally figures out through this process of interrogation how little he understands or or little he knows But it's only through this process of interrogation that Job's ignorance is revealed, Eliphaz's ignorance is revealed, Bildad's ignorance is revealed, Zophar's ignorance is revealed. You don't know anything. And since you're dealing with such limited data, do you realize how foolish you look when you come to a person who's suffering and you try to pretend like you know exactly why it happened? And you assume that there must be sin in their life. Uh, in fact, the very first prosperity preachers ever in human history were Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. Because when you turn on so-called Christian television, they will tell you this all the time. Well, the reason you're poor is you don't have enough faith. And if you just had enough faith to give money to my TV ministry, by the way, you'd be rich. So you're in the circumstance that you're in because you don't have any faith. And the reason you're sick is you haven't claimed your promises because you're a king's kid. And you should be able to, through positive confession... Confess away your illnesses. Uh, Positive confession. Blab it and grab it is what I call it. And it's all built around this idea that you see that's happening in the book of Job. The same idea that the apostles thought. Who sinned this man or his parents? This idea that suffering has happened to somebody because of a lack of faith or of sin. Now, don't get me wrong. When we step out into sin, we step out of God's protective guardrail. Because the Ten Commandments, that's really what they are. They're a guardrail. They're they're to protect us from things. We have a tendency to look at the Ten Commandments as sort of encumbrances on our life. But they're really there as a protection for our own good. I think it's Deuteronomy 10, I want to say verse 13, where... Moses, God through Moses concerning his law says these things have I not given to them, given them to you for your own good. So there is an element of truth to any heresy. There is a truth that when we step out of God's will, we can suffer consequences. But the problem with prosperity thinking is we think that every time someone is suffering. Anytime someone is having difficulty. It relates to sin in their life. And that simply um, is inaccurate. That simply is untrue. And I find it very interesting that the very first book in terms of date of composition, by the way, does anybody know what the very first book recorded was? The book of Job. Job. There, there, there would be no Bible for six centuries after the book of Job came into existence. It's interesting to me that the very first book of the Bible deals with this issue of suffering. Before God um, developed theology on any other subject, he gave us in the book of Job... a book related to human suffering. Why would God deal with that subject first before he deals with any other subject? Answer, because God knows that would be the thing that human beings living in a fallen world would struggle with. I mean, that's a struggle, we have to admit. Why do bad things happen to good people? And we can get very simplistic in our understandings like the prosperity gospel and the prosperity movement does. And God knew that that would be such an overarching issue and concern in our lives. The Lord said, you know what, I'm going to dedicate before I write anything else biblically. Before the book of Genesis is even going to come into existence through Moses six centuries later, I'm going to talk about the issue of suffering in the book of Job. And here is a 42 chapter book exploring the finitudes and limitations of human knowledge. How little people know about this issue and how we assume things that aren't true at all. And just as Job can't answer any question about how the universe came into existence, he doesn't know anything about this subject because there's all kinds of things in the outworking of God's purposes that are happening that Job and his counselors knew nothing about. All of that to say, when you have the opportunity to minister to someone who's suffering, sometimes the best thing to do is just to be quiet And let them talk. And don't come at them with your sort of pre-imposed grid about why you think they're suffering the way that they're suffering. One of the greats in Christianity, by my estimation, is Johnny Erickson Tata. You know her story. Paralyzed from the neck down. A diving accident as a teenager on the East Coast. And if you listen to Johnny Erickson Tata talk, she said countless people have told her that she's in that wheelchair because she put herself in it. Do we understand how wicked that is to tell somebody? I mean, being in a wheelchair is hard enough without somebody telling you you put yourself in it because of disobedience or lack of faith. And she has had countless people lay hands on her, try to heal her. The healing never came. Well, the reason the healing never came is you don't have enough faith. That's like putting someone in double jeopardy. I mean, you're suffering, and the reason you're suffering is it's your own fault. That's what the disciples were saying to the man born blind. This is what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar and Elihu were saying to Job. Johnny Erickson Tata will tell you that the reason she has a worldwide ministry is not in, is not in spite of the wheelchair, but because of the wheelchair. She has the influence that she has ministerially because God allowed this circumstance, which I wouldn't wish on anybody, to happen. No wheelchair, no worldwide ministry. No man born blind, no glorification of Jesus who's going to heal the man born blind. Why do I bring this up? Because it's very likely that this man, Eliphaz, that's mentioned here, connected to Teman, was Job's first counselor. Because the book of Job, we believe, happened in the land of Uz, uh, not Oz, but Uz. And as people have sort of tracked down that name, it's probably an area there in, around, or near the Mount Seir region. And so in the book of beginnings, you would think there would be some reference to one of Job's counselors, Job chapter 2 verse 11 refers to his first counselor as Eliphaz the Temanite. Where did Eliphaz the Temanite come from? He came from the Edomites, most likely, as recorded in Genesis 36. And as you go from there into verse 12, it talks about Timnah a concubine of Esau's son Eliphaz. Verse 12 says, Timnah was a concubine of Esau's son Eliphaz, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. So according to verse 12, through Timnah came Amalek. Now, who in the world is Amalek? Amalek. In the book of Exodus, chapter 7, verses 8 through 16, Amalek is a group of people that opposed Israel as Israel was coming out of the Egyptian bondage for 400 years in the Exodus event. In fact, the very first battle that they faced was against Amalek as they were making their way from Egypt to Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 7 verses 8 through 16 says, Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the mountain. So it came about that when Moses held his hands up, Israel prevailed. And when he let his hands down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Lactic acid buildup, right? Moses' hands were heavy. So they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this down in a book as a memorial, and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is My Banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Kind of interesting that Moses is winning as his hands are extended, but he got tired. So God raised up what we call in the New Testament the spiritual gift of helps. The one who comes alongside and helps leadership. I'm happy to say that here at Sugarland Bible Church we have lots of people like that. They may not necessarily be in the limelight. They may not be necessarily up front but they come alongside leadership and help me do what I'm able to do, something I couldn't do if I didn't have help. That's what Joshua and her, more specifically Aaron and her, were to Moses. And God may be calling you to that kind of a ministry. Don't think that If you're not in some giant position of influence that you've missed the plan of God. What does the Apostle Paul say? He says the parts of the body that you can't see. It's those parts of the body that are indispensable. I mean, you can't see my lungs. You can't see my heart. Physically speaking, but if one of those things stops working, there's going to be a lot of problems. You have a lot of problems in Christianity because people uh, assume that somehow if they're in ministry, they've got to be in some great position of influence when the truth of the matter is the person in the position of influence couldn't have influence without the gift of helps in operation. So praise the Lord for the, the gift of helps. And this is how Amalek was overcome. But because Amalek came against the Jewish people as they were making their way to Sinai, what did God say in Genesis 12, verse 3? The one who curses you, I will curse. This is why in the Exodus 17 passage, the Lord said, I will utterly blot out Amalek from under heaven. Amalek uh, went on in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 3, verse 13. And became one of the oppressors in the book of Judges. God had to raise up a judge. One of several in the book of Judges to release Israel from the bondage brought over the Israelis by Amalek. And finally it was Saul. That's way later in biblical history that God used to finally blot out Amalek. 1 Samuel chapter 14 verse 48 says, He, Saul, acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. There is a truth that is just as certain as the law of gravity itself. It's an immutable truth that cannot be altered. People sometimes get mad at Christian leadership for articulating the truth as if we're the ones that invented it. Christian teachers invent nothing. Some of them do. Uh, but a good Christian teacher, a good Bible teacher doesn't invent anything. All he really does is articulate what God has already said. And here's the law. If you come against Israel, God comes against you. Amalek, your days are numbered because you came against Israel. Genesis 12, verse 3, God says, The one who curses you, I will curse. Just track it through history. Every single empire, although a ruler of the known world, started to have their days numbered the moment they took their finger and stuck it into God's eye. Because Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8, God says, Israel... Is the apple of my eye. Well, I don't like the Jewish people, you might say. I don't agree with everything the Jewish people do. Well, God didn't agree with everything they did either. Just read the Old Testament and you'll see God disagreeing (laughs) with his own people. But when you develop a mindset that says, let's get rid of Israel or you develop a theology which cuts Israel out of the picture nationally and says she has no future, it's like ticking your finger and jamming it into the pupil of God and saying, I dare you to act. Babylon ruled the world. Her days were numbered as she came against Israel. Same pattern with Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, You see even in our own time period, nations like Spain, Britain, others that shrunk in influence the moment they came against Israel. Hitler's Third Reich was supposed to last a thousand years. They said of Britain, the the sun never set on the British Empire. And look at Britain today. If you somehow think that the United States of America is exempt from that principle, you're deceived. It's like throwing yourself off a building and saying the law of gravity doesn't apply to me because I'm an American. That's the same kind of logic people are using. I thank God for the United States of America. I thank God for her pro-Semitic foundation. I'll be honest with you. And I think this um, bothers us having children and then grandchildren. Because they have to live here after we're dead and gone. It does disturb me a great deal to see politicians, leaders, condemning everything Israel does. We need to be very careful about what we're saying we, we need to be very careful about what we're thinking. We need to be very careful about making value judgments about the nation of Israel when we don't have all of the facts. In the book of Numbers, Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel. Numbers 23 and 24. You can read all about it. The problem is every time Balaam of Moab opened his mouth, he ended up blessing Israel. In fact, one of the things that Balaam said is from Israel, Numbers 24, verse 17, there's coming a Messiah connected to a star. He had that prophecy in Mesopotamia, Babylon. Now we start having an understanding of why on all our Christmas cards we have these magi or these wise men coming to the nation of Israel to seek out the Messiah following an abnormal star. That's what Balaam said would happen. And at one point in these oracles, Balaam, who was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse Israel, Balaam said, how can I curse what God loves? You can pay me all the money in the world you want, but I can't get this curse out of my mouth. Because a curse, when it came out of his mouth, turned into a blessing. How, how can I hate what God loves? God loves Israel. They are his people. They are his elect nation. And uh, any nation that feels differently, they quickly, in the timing of God and the providence of God, find themselves on the ash heap of history. Amalek being one example. But where did Amalek come from? Came right here from this relationship between Esau and this uh, concubine, Timnah. Wouldn't we expect this kind of understanding in the book of beginnings? Beginning of the universe, the book of Genesis, the beginning of life, the beginning of man, the beginning of marriage, the beginning of evil, the beginning of clothing, religion, salvation, language, government, nations... Israel. I mean, why is it that Moses is trying to enter the promised land and the Edomites are giving him a problem? Well, we have an explanation of where the Edomites came from. They came from Esau. Why is it that when the nation of Israel comes out of Egypt, Amalek is giving Israel a problem? Well, we have an explanation of where Amalek came from. It came from this relationship between Eliphaz and this concubine, Timnah. You look at verse 12 and you sort of have a conclusion there. It says, these are the sons of Esau's wife, Adah. And then you go down into verse 13 and you have the sons of Ruel. Notice verse 13. These are the sons of Ruel. Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. The sons are described there in verse 13 and then you get to the end of verse 13 and it gives you a conclusion. Those are the sons, by the way. I'll keep that up there for a minute because most likely you've never seen names quite like that. You get to verse 13 and gives you the conclusion, second part of it. These were the sons of Esau's wife. That's another wife. Basmoth. And then you go to verse 14 and we have the lineage from another wife, Oholabama. Verse 14, what are those sons named? Verse 14, these are the sons of Esau's wife, Oholabama, the daughter of Anna, the granddaughter of Zebion. She, now look at this conclusion. She, verse 14 bore to Esau these sons, Jeush, uh Jalam, and Korah. Now, there's a very interesting observation that can be made at this point as you look at all of these descendants of Esau from his wives, Canaanite wives, but taken to the Mount Seir area, a record of his sons and his grandsons, What you see disintegrating is these names have less and less and less to do with the things of God. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes this about this laundry list of names. He says observations can be made about Esau's house. Here there are a total of 80 names, but only two Two of eighty-one. Not a very high percentile. But only two contain the name of God. One is Ruel, which means the friend of God, and the other is uh, Jehush, which means Jehovah Help. (laughs) I like that name. I call that out a lot. Lord, help. Help me. You know, your most precious thing that you have is your children. And if God is near and dear to your heart, you have a tendency to name your most precious thing after something related to God. That's why we have names in our culture like Matthew, you know, John, Luke, uh, Paul, even this name, Andrew. Boy, I like that one. We can shorten it a little bit, but Andrew, that's my full name, as you, as you know. Um, I was named after the disciple that was bringing people to Jesus. Wow. And one of the things that's very interesting, is as the culture moves away from God, the names of children start having less and less to do with the things of God because the culture really no longer values God anymore. Now, we don't have a lot of control over what name we have, and I'm not here to cast aspersions on people's names. I just think it's somewhat interesting and somewhat disturbing in our culture that more and more children are born and they're given names that have zero to do with Scripture, zero to do with the Bible, zero to do with theology. And I think that has something to do with the fact that the things of God are really not as important to people as they once were in American society. It's um, just another sign of the times that's what it is. And yet in the home, God has given us a ministry, hasn't he? You say, where's that ministry described? It's in Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 7. There's your ministry in the home. In fact, if you're the father of a home, the Bible says you're the high priest of the home. Do you know that I have two churches? I'm the pastor of Sugarland Bible Church, but that's not even my primary church. My church is an audience of two I'm sitting right here in the front row. That's that's the job God gave me, to be the pastor uh, of my wife and and my daughter. And they've been held captive by a lot of captive sermons, I can tell you that much. (laughs) But that is a ministry that we have as men within the home. It doesn't mean you you rule with a rod of iron and harshness, but you love your wife as Christ loved the church. And what do you do with your children? You bring them up in the things of God. And you don't sort of outsource it to a youth pastor and say, okay, Christianize my kids. A youth pastor can't do that. doesn't have the ability. We have a wonderful youth pastor with Gabe in this church, but he's not a miracle worker. The only thing he can do is reinforce... What's happening in the home? I, I tell you, I got quite a lesson on this in my very first pastor at Pico Rivera, California. Before I became the pastor there, I was uh, under the retiring pastor, soon to be retired. And he said something. He said, I want you to look very carefully at these families as they come to church. There are families in this church that will use this church as a babysitting service. They'll drop the kids off, they'll go do their own thing. Important stuff, I guess, sports, the newspaper, whatever. Come back and pick up those kids and go home. And we have a Sunday school for kids, we have a nursery. Um I guess we can accommodate that. It's their choice. But I want you to watch, he told me, what happens to those children when they hit their teen years and they start making decisions. Nine times out of ten, he told me, those children of those kind of homes will not stick with the church. They'll, They'll leave it. Why would they leave it? Because that's what they saw from their high priest in their home. They saw a lifestyle. By the way, the greatest sermons you could ever preach are lifestyle sermons. You you, you run into a difficult time as a family and you say, well, let's, let's pray about this. And you gather everyone around and you pray. You just sent quite a sermon to those kids because they're thinking, wow. Prayer is important. Maybe I should pray more. Hey, let's, let's gather around and let's read the Word of God. What better time to do it than this week, pointing to the birth of Jesus. Let, let's read early Luke together. Those kids are saying, wow, the Bible is important. Maybe I better read my Bible more. Because I'm watching how my high priest... And priestess, family are cherishing the things of God. If a family will bring their kids to church, drop their kids off, and go off to community softball. And by the way, you don't have far to travel, right? For community softball, right across the street. By the way, if you're over there, just tell those people to please not park in our parking lot. What do you think the children are going to do in that kind of family when they have an opportunity to make their own decisions? Community softball is more important than church because that's what my high priest and priestess role modeled for me. Here is your assignment from the Lord as a parent. Hear, O Israel... The Lord your God is one. This is called, by the way, the Hebrew Shema, which means listen. Listen up. Shema. Hear, Israel, the Lord your God is one. These are the words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them for 15 minutes every day. Oops, doesn't say that. It starts to describe a lifestyle, daily life. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, it encompasses all of the facets of the day. And every facet of the day, you should be role modeling what's significant to you. Because that's what's going to rub off that a youth pastor cannot instill. If you're, if you're trying to outsource this to someone else, you're outside the blueprint of God. God dis- intended, He designed for spiritual truth to be passed from parents to children. It's not that God doesn't reach people of parents that fail in their model, in this model. God can and does, by grace, reach many people that come from terrible environments. But that doesn't subtract or detract from the point that the model exists. And the pastor I was under said, by contrast, watch the parents and the kids that bring their kids to church and stay. Watch what happens to those kids when they reach decision-making age. Nine times out of ten, they'll stick with the church because they 're following the blueprint of what was important to them as given to them by the high priest and priestess in their home, oh come on that 's just old testament stuff we 're not let 's take the dispensational dodge on this shall we ah, that 's just israel we 're not Israel, okay, fine. How about Ephesians uh, chapter six verse four? Is Ephesians in the New Testament? all right just want to make sure i 'm with the right crowd here. Fathers, Ephesians 6, verse 4, do not provoke your children to anger. In other words, don't become so legalistic that you make life impossible for them. But bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6, verse 4 is just repeating what's in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. Deuteronomy 6, 4-7 for Israel, repeated for the church age in Ephesians 6, verse 4. Have you ever thought about what's the most frightening words in the Bible? Here, Here to me is the most frightening words. They're in Judges 2, verse 10. It says all that generation also, that's the Joshua generation that did so much for the cause of Christ, the cause of Yahweh. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. Here's the Joshua generation doing what they did and yet something went wrong. After them arose a generation that didn't know anything about the Exodus. They didn't know anything about the sojourn in Egypt. They apparently didn't know anything about the... Mir- miraculous crossing at jericho it's almost as if the joshua generation as respect respectable as they were people we look up to it's almost like they were so interested in doing the things of god that they forgot their primary ministry they, they forgot their family And so a whole generation arises right after them that really knew nothing about the things of God at all. Um, I'm here to tell you folks that that is exactly where we are in the United States of America. It's exactly where we are in evangelical Christianity with our outsource mindset. It's exactly where Esau's descendants were where you have all of these names 81 of them and 79 of them have nothing to do with what's the most fundamental thing the things of god i think we need to in the new year as we think about the new year i think we need to repent of this repent means to change your mind we need to start changing our minds concerning how we think about the next generation. That's why I've entitled this message The Next Generation. I'm not trying to take anything away from Star Trek or anything. But the next generation, isn't that what it's about? And it, and, and there's more to it than more programs in the church. Thank God for programs in the church. I'm not denying or despising them at all. Thank God for every single one of them. What I'm talking about is God's program, what's happening in the home. You have here in Esau's descendants a civilization in decline, not only because of sexual immorality, which we covered last week, but also the ministry in the home started to dissipate. I personally don't think it's too late in the game to turn, turn this around because with God, all things are possible. It just requires a renewed understanding and a renewed commitment as to trying to press into God's paradigm and God's design. And so the next time I'm with you, actually not the next time I'm with you, I'll be with you next Sunday. But the Sunday after that, I'm hoping to, believe it or not, cover verses 15 through 43. You guys are going to have to show up to see how that's going to be done. (laughs) And pray for me because I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to try. And then we'll start the Joseph story fresh uh, in the new year. Next Sunday is Christmas Eve, and as you know, we're having a normal church service from 1030 to 12. Christmas Eve uh, service is a great time where we're very brief here, believe it or not. Some of you are shocked about that, Uh, where it's just a time of singing, a a very fast devotional, because we do want Christmas Eve to be a family time, as we've talked about today. But it's a great way to keep Christ in your thinking on Christmas Eve. So we'll do that next Sunday. Are you guys looking forward to that, by the way? And then the following Sunday, the last Sunday in December, Lord willing, we're going to try to finish up the Edomites, starting the Joseph story fresh in January. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word, grateful for your truth, grateful for some of these ancient genealogies, things we sort of pass over not understanding their significance, and yet they're so foundational to the rest of the Bible and to our lives. I pray, Lord, if anybody within the sound of my voice has never placed their faith in the Savior for salvation, I pray that for them today is the day of salvation. As the Holy Spirit convicts them, they might put their personal faith in Christ alone for their salvation and be born again. I can't think of a more wonderful time to be born anew as we celebrate in this season the birth of your son. I pray that if anybody within the sound of my voice needs more um, insight into this, more understanding, I pray that they'll talk to me as I'm available after the service. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said.